Hello, good morning. Um, we're lucky enough to be joined by three genuinely talented people rather than me. Please join, please welcome me in joining one by one, Alice Lowe. Will Sharp. And Alice Birch. We've got a rather strange social situation going on. I didn't want to be rude and have people come past me while I was already sitting down. Um, all three of you have made this journey from page to screen already in quite a triumphant fashion. I'm going to talk about each of your films in turn. And obviously there will be time, because this is kind of, this session's about you guys really, so there will be time to ask questions. Um, but first I'll monopolise the conversation a little bit. Um, whenever I talk to people about doing Q&As, they always say the worst question they get asked is, where do your ideas come from? So tempted as I am to ask that question, I won't. What I will ask is whether your ideas tend to come the first sort of germ of an idea that then leads to a script, whether that comes as a, a eureka moment, that kind of cartoon light bulb sitting in the bath, or whether it's much more of a gradual process and kind of over a period of days, weeks, months, you kind of, you find out, you realise that you're interested in a certain character or a certain scenario. Uh, Alice, if you're sitting closest to me, I'll start with you. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say it was the light bulb eureka moment, but that has never happened. Right. Um, I, think it, I, th I think it's much more gradual. I think it's sort of, it's really hard to identify where it comes from for me. It's sort of so subconscious. It's sort of, um, it, you know, it's all round the back of here. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a kind of collection of things and, um, it's, it can be much more of a discovery when you start writing. It's suddenly like, oh, I, d I didn't know that was, that was going to come. Or, yeah, sure. I think for me. Okay. Yeah. Alice, how about Prevenge? Um, I, I do think I have the light bulb moment, actually. But um, on the other hand, I think stuff is there to be excavated sometimes. And it's like that light bulb moment's a bit of an illusion. Like you suddenly go, oh, I have had this amazing idea. But actually, it's a sum of a lot of stuff you've been thinking about or you've been interested in. Like, uh, it sounds off topic, but my friend said to me, my daughter's called Della, and my friend said to me, I remember we had this conversation when we were about 18 and you said you were going to call your daughter Della. And I was like, did I? <laughs> I thought that was a new idea that I just had. <laughs> and I think that kind of sums up my creative process. I, I think something's a new idea. And then I'm like, no, I was always going to make a film about this. Like, I look back on old notes and go, oh, I was kind of interested in this idea way before I just hadn't found the kind of perfect way to put it in a nutshell, basically. So there's like a reservoir of ideas that are kind of like waiting for their moment. Yeah, and a reservoir of influences. I kind of think your influences are kind of built into your DNA. I truly believe like probably all my influences happened before I was 18. <laughs> and there was a cut-off point <laughs> where no new things could go in my brain. But I mean, I try, <laughs> I watch some stuff. But I do, you know, generally I'm like, oh yeah, I'm interested in the same things now as I was when I was like 15 <laughs> in some ways. So it's all um, happened, the excitement's all happened. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I do come back to the same stuff again and again. And it's actually quite a comfort in that sometimes because you can kind of get influenced by things that may be a bit faddy mm -hmm. or a bit, you know, zeitgeisty. And sometimes that's good and sometimes you want to actually move away from that and, and dig deeper into something that's a bit more idiosyncratic. Sure. Will, how about you? I mean, so with Black Pond, for instance, is, this, is that a light bulb moment or is this something which has been brewing since you were 15? Um... I think I, I, I feel like you, I feel like I relate to both of those versions where you have a series of eureka moments, but most of them are, are not actual breakthroughs <laughs> and some of them are. And but there's also like the thing where it's actually very long 
process. It's very slow and it's sort of quite unremarkable in a way. The sort of journey to getting to a finished thing is just turning up every day. Um, I was taken with the idea of a light bulb when you're in the bath. <laughs> it's unsafe, isn't it? It's quite it is. dangerous. <laughs> like, there's something in that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I have the idea, drop the idea, and then you die. That's how you make a film. It's my terrible flaw in my creative process. Yeah. <laughs> it's light bulb sitting uh, It's kind of like, I sometimes sort of like, you're sort of sitting in a room full of just smashed light bulbs. <laughs> right? and, and then eventually, and then eventually you sort of manage to keep one alight or something. How many, I I mean, to, just to really torture this metaphor a little bit further, I mean, how many smashed light bulbs are there at any one point? I mean, how many projects? Several thousand. Are, right, okay. Yeah. And no, the, I <laughs> but let me say, wait, so if we were to open your laptop now, I mean, how many documents in how many different folders are kind of live projects that in theory you're working on any one point? I'll go, I'm going to back this way, or Alice. <laughs> I was just like thinking, oh God. Yeah, I mean, it, you don't want to think of it as being a graveyard, do you? <laughs> your, your laptop. <laughs> but, you know, I'm very, I'm into recycling. You know, I do think that there's, I do think sometimes that um, as a writer, you've got one good story in you. And it might be that you retell that story over and over again. And that's fine. That's like most filmmakers that have had a sustainable career. I think you could say, like Scorsese always tells about people that are finding their power in whatever way or whatever. Um, so I kind of like to, uh, you know, have lots of ideas that are kind of like, yeah, dotted all over my laptop like a graveyard. And every now and then I, I have a look at those old ideas and go, do you know what, there, there was some really good stuff in this. It just needed to be reshuffled or redone or, um, you know, sometimes I, I steal from my own <laughs> ideas in a way. I look back mm. on something and I go, that was a great character or a great setting or a great scene. I'm going to lift that from that project that didn't happen and put it somewhere else. And in that way, you don't feel like you're really wasting stuff. I think I think that's the the sad thing that can happen in the UK. Like we've got very few outlets to get our stuff made. You know, especially as you know, you've got Film Four, you've got BFI, you've got Creative England. Um, you know, and a, a few other places. But um, sometimes you can spend years working on something and then feel like, oh, everyone turned it down. It's, it's dead that idea, and I think that's really sad. And I think in the in America, there's you can kind of keep on trying to sell that idea until you've sold it, you know. Um, but I, I do think that you know it's kind of about pursuing stuff and never feeling like oh that just because that didn't get made doesn't mean it's bad. It's it's actually and and so much learning goes into that that project that didn't happen. <coughs> you've probably learned loads by by doing it. So I don't think anything's ever wasted really. So on a really specific nuts and bolts level, I mean, with Prevenge, for instance, I mean, was that a script that you started writing on, on spec, or is this something where you knew you had a reasonable idea that this was actually going to become a, a project and then become a film? It was a completely weird way that it happened. I was pregnant, and someone said, I've got funding to make a film. Do you want to make one? And I actually said, no, because I'm pregnant. I can't do it. And then I went, oh, I actually really want to be working. I don't want to take time off. I, I want some money, and I want to be able to be a filmmaker and uh, and so I thought well I could do a pregnant character and I could maybe make a revenge narrative about that character and then I came up with the idea then I wrote it and I wrote it very quickly and um, I wrote it in like two weeks but possibly uh, I wrote it the actual body of it in like five days and then gave it for some notes and then wrote some more and that was it and it I kind of felt like, you know, people were like, whoa, how do you do that? And you kind of go, 15 years of wanting to write a film. Do you know what I mean? So 
every bit of experience went into kind of being able to do that at speed. So, again, you know, every bit of work that you do is useful, I think. And sure. And Alice, with Lady Macbeth, I mean, obviously that's a slightly different case in yeah. as much as there's source material already there. Yeah. And so what point did you come in on the project? Well, I'd, I'd read the book years ago at university and had, had just been really struck by that central character because she's so horrible and <laughs> complicated and like, all the things that guys get to do on screen all the time. So I just, I didn't, I just thought about it, but as... You know, as I said earlier, there was no eureka moment. I just thought she's interesting. My background is completely in theatre, so I wasn't looking to make a film. I like films. I was interested in the kind of craft of what that might be, but I didn't feel like burning desire to do it, to be honest. Um, and then my agent set a sort of set up a meeting with this director, Will, who'd read some of my plays, and he was like, you know, should we have a go? And I gave him the book. Um, and he really liked it. And then we applied to Eye Features, which is this scheme. So it sort of like really holds your hand the whole way through writing the film, which again is completely different to my normal process, which is very much, you know, me on my own, don't want to talk to anyone, going to do it myself, and then hand it over. But yeah, this was much more collaborative. And was the engine for, for that collaboration, I mean, was that because you wanted William Oldroyd, who directed it, was that mm. because you wanted to work with him or because you wanted to make Lady Macbeth and he was the director who kind of both. showed some interest? Yeah, but and, and both. I, it, it was very much about him. Like, we really got on. We, we could be really honest and direct from the beginning. And, and I did think the book was brilliant. And I think I'd just always been a bit scared of film. I think I'd, like, I felt like, you know, I'd, my first plays were in pubs pub theatres with like three people there one of them definitely drunk no one's really listening it's fine <laughs> like I can make loads of mistakes and the stakes are really low and I can learn my craft it's fine film is like huge <laughs> so I think I was just a bit nervous about it but once we started I really loved it I thought it was yeah and Will, with Black Pond as your first project, I mean, I wonder whether that started life from the word go as a film project, because obviously we're in an age, and we were, you know, even a few years ago, we're, in a, we're at a point where stories can take lots of different forms, and particularly for writers, for screenwriters, you know, there's a big impetus now to work for TV and to explore that as a, as a platform. Was this always a movie? Was Black Pond always a film? Black, po Black Pond was, it was sort of initially based on uh, me and my friend Tom Kingsley, who... Uh, co-directed it with me and a couple of other friends actually we wrote a silly play at university which was like a spoof of King Lear about like an old man who uh, kidnapped someone else's children um, <laughs> and then got them to sign a birthday card but it was actually a contract that meant they were now legally his children. It was just stupid basically. We were like why don't we turn this into a film Tom and I and it was turning into this movie which had like helicopters and castles in it and stuff. We just like, there's absolutely no way <laughs> that we can make this. So we sort of tried to just forget that original idea, take some of the characters that we liked and turn all of the helicopters and castles into sort of subtext subtextural um, helicopters and sort of try and make it a quieter, <laughs> more manageable story, which was just about like a few people in a house and the woods, like, locations that we thought we could probably get uh, and a small enough cast, a simple enough story. So then, so I often actually think that restrictions are really helpful because it just forces you to think about what you definitely actually need. And in a way, with Black Pond, it was kind of 
just writing very practically. Just like, well, well let's imagine that, um, actually what happened was someone watched a short film we'd made uh, on holiday in Japan, because I owed my family in Japan a visit. Both of us had like a week free, wanted to make a short film. So Tom came with me. We used my Japanese family as actors. In the, and their house is the location, came back. Someone had seen it and got a bit excited and said, well, what about if we give you 50 grand to make a feature? Then went on sabbatical, came back enlightened and said, actually, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but by then, we had sort of thought about it. I'd written a script, and we were sort of quite excited. So we were like, well, let's just do it. So basically, I suppose the lesson we learned there was we didn't have the confidence or arrogance to sort of make a feature film until someone with a beard said, <laughs> like, can we give you permission? Sure. And then suddenly we were like, well, we've sort of been doing it, you know, like at the weekend. So why don't we just carry on doing that? Um, so that's sort of how that happened. I mean, you mentioned character development being quite a significant part of the process kind of early on. And I wonder, I mean, novelists will often talk about spending months, if not years, just actually just sketching out the character, and then they start work on the novel itself. And I wonder, as screenwriters, whether your process is slightly different, whether you have that same process of kind of getting to know the character first before you start writing, or whether you kind of get to know the character while you're writing the script. Alice? I mean, I think it's sort of different for every project, and you just get instincts about what's the right thing to lead, and that's sort of... Your you know, I, I don't really know how to explain that any better. But with Lady Macbeth, the, in the book, she's not very... She's certainly not very likeable, but she's also not that easy to empathise with, and she does some pretty awful things. So that felt like the first thing to do. To, and also, I think when you're working with source material, you, if you're going to adapt it, you need to reclaim it. So I did. I spent quite a long time, um, you know, asking asking these characters hundreds of questions and building timelines and sort of thinking about what details and what what food they liked and what you know what they wear to bed and how often they have sex and you know sort of really getting to know them as well as I could before writing. But I don't think it's always like that. I don't think that's that can be that can become a hindrance. Well, I was going to say, I mean, once you've done that process, which is obviously kind of vital in its way, mm. is there maybe a temptation to then, I mean, you almost have to edit out a lot of that stuff sure. and not put in the stuff about the Yeah, you don't food. want to shoehorn in that she's got a grape allergy because that's not <laughs> interesting. But, like, you know, you, you can just be pleased with that discovery. <laughs> <laughs> um, did Ruth have a grape allergy to prevent? <laughs> No, I think it's quite interesting, though, because like, I'd be interested to hear what Will has to say, because I think coming from a performer's perspective, mm -hmm. the temptation is to go for character first. And I think me and Steve Oram slightly made that mistake with Sightseers, which is possibly why it took seven years to get made. It's like, you know, that's the thing with performers. Um, content, dialogue, bleh, it's coming out of me. Like, I know what the character is. It's like, bleh, 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 like that. And then, obviously, you get to the point where you're like, well, what goes in the story? And that's the thing about story is, story is sometimes the character doing something for the first time that is actually out of character. And it's not about what they do typically, it's about what they do atypically. And I think a lot of screenwriting books actually are sort of character is action. So you find the character when you know what their action is in, in a way, like the story tells you what the character's gonna be. That was much more the case with Prevenge actually. As soon as I knew it was a pregnant woman taking revenge, I knew what her character was. I was like, Oh, so revenge is about looking backwards. It's about um, not being able to let go of the past. It's about um, getting rid of your current life and becoming a weapon, and you are becoming this force of action. 
and that, combined with pregnancy, which is all supposed to be about hopefulness and the future and all this stuff, just that created a character, and that was immediately uh, interesting to me, and I could see who that person was. Um, whereas Sightseers was these very detailed characters that had a life before they started <laughs> murdering people. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was just a bit of a different, um, you know, two different approaches, really. Sure. I mean, how has that worked for you mechanically, Will? I mean, because you've been appearing on screen as well in your own projects, and has that been a case of writing for yourself? Or has it been a case of, okay, now here's the script, I may as well play this character? I think it's a, it's a sort of somewhere in between. It's partly like, for example, on Black Pond, it was a big part of it was, well, that's one less mattress to find <laughs> and one less, like, fewer mouths to feed, you know, kind of thing. But also, I enjoy it. Um, on other projects, like in Flowers, maybe it was a bit more like I, w I wanted to. This is TV now, but like, Jap like I wanted to have a Japanese comedy flavour in the show somehow. And in the end, it was like, well, probably the easiest way is to have Japanese character. And then I was like, well, I look right for that, you know? <laughs> so there's some, somewhere in between, I guess. Like. I mean, I wondered if any of you had come across, obviously, because, you know, as, as you t mentioned just now with Sightseers, Alex, I mean, there's, there's a time when a character just kind of takes over and finds their own voice. But equally, I'm guessing there may be times where a character doesn't quite seem to come to life, and you can see that dramatically they have a certain role in the narrative. But, I mean, Graham Greene always used to say in every one of his books there was one character who he thought just didn't work, and he kind of tried to sneak them in and hope no one noticed. But I wonder if any of you had found that experience, where there's some, maybe, maybe a character or maybe just something else within a narrative which isn't working, and then how do you fix that while you're actually in the process of writing? I, I actually had that with Prevenge, that I had another character, and... It's kind of this thing of like a B story, like people saying, oh, you've got to have a B story. And they said that to us with Sightseers, Film 4 said, you've got to have a B story. And we had this character that was of our B story, and they got cut, which was actually really horrible for the actor because they were amazing. And exactly the same thing happened with Prevenge. I was like, I've got to have a B story. And we had this other character that represented the B story. And Gareth Tunley, who directed and wrote The Ghoul, he read the script and he was like, I don't get this character, I don't like it. And I was like, oh, it's really important and great and shut up. And then we filmed it with a brilliant actress and it just, she just didn't need it. And it went and that was awful to have to say to someone, I'm really sorry, it's not because of your acting. It's just, there was too much, it was just too much and we didn't need it. And it is that Coco Chanel thing. Take out the last thing you put on or something, take off the last thing you put on or something because it's not necessary. But um, I don't know, that's, that's kind of a lesson for me of like not trying to conform too much to the screenwriting rules, which can trip you up, really. Like, uh, sometimes they're very useful and sometimes they're just not. I wanted to ask all three of you about that, actually, because, I mean, I'm sure people in the room will have had similar experiences as well. I mean, screenwriting seems to have, you know, there are whole sections in bookshops devoted to the art of screenwriting, often written by people who haven't really written scripts themselves. And I wondered, you know, but there's a, there's a, there's a way you're supposed to approach screenwriting, you know, thematically and structurally. And I wondered how seriously you took that stuff. And, you know, so actually when you were first starting to write scripts, did you sit down and study Sid Field and William Goldman and all that stuff? Or did you actually think, OK, no, I don't need to get involved with this? I mean, you came, obviously, because you, as you yeah. said, Alice, you came from a different yeah. background. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I didn't look at it at all. I didn't, yeah. 
no, I've, I've never, I don't think I've ever stood in any of those sections in bookshops and felt like I wanted or needed to pick that up. But I'm, I'm, and I think a huge part of that is that theatre in this country, the writer is really celebrated. It's all about the writer's voice. It's very much the writer's medium. So I've, I've had a lot of time and opportunity to really have have those things tested and work those muscles. So by the time it came to writing the screenplay, I, I mean, I, I knew how to, I felt like I, I know how to do story and character and plot. And it doesn't mean that I definitely don't need some notes and some you know, outside eyes along the way, but I just, I, I just can't imagine opening those books and finding them inspiring. I think watch, <laughs> watch other people's work, go to galleries, read books, read poetry, read, like go and do people watching, go and get your food that way, for me. But I'm totally wrong. <laughs> in, actually, I mean, in terms of that food, I mean, I wondered, and Alison will, how much you're engaging with other films and other scripts. During, I suppose there's two things going on, when you're not writing and when you're writing. And I suppose from outside you think, well, maybe you're kind of constantly absorbing and constantly watching when you're not writing and then you stop. I mean, that's, again, that's something that writers do is just kind of stop absorbing other people's work while they're busy with their own. But what's your process? Well, we're talking about this. I think it goes in cycles for me where sometimes I'll be eating films uh, <laughs> and shows from... With shattered light bulbs. From now. <laughs> uh, and, other times, uh, and other times it's like, I sort of, especially now, I sort of feel like I actually just can't watch anymore. <laughs> like, you know, and you start, they all start to feel like the same film or the same show because they're made in the same time. And so then you'd ret you retreat to, you know, films from another time or... Uh, and then even... And then those get a bit, like, stodgy and intense. And so then you just stop watching everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there is also, like, when um, deadlines are loomy and you're really busy, you just don't actually have time to watch stuff. Mm -hmm. So it actually takes ages to watch a thing, <laughs> you know? Like, um, I think for me, it, it just goes in cycles. And how about you, Alice? Because I know, because as a director... Um, you know, I know something that the directors will do often with cast and crew is to show them certain key films for a mood, you know, to create at the start of the shoot. But, I mean, as a writer, I'm guessing that maybe you, you very much don't do that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a mixture. It's like, um, you know, as you're saying, I think it's really good to go and watch other mediums because you can get really saturated in films and really, you know, and I think at the moment audiences are really intelligent. They know what the screenwriting books say, which is this, 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 and they want something that surprises them with the narrative. So you can get to a point where, I don't know, maybe watching films, you know, it starts to become a bit rigid and a bit samey, and actually to go and see a dance piece or yeah. go and, like, watch a bit of theatre or read some poetry, it, it can be really useful because it frees your mind. And that was one of the realisations that I had watching, you know, making Sightseers was, even though, you know, Ben Wheatley directed that, was I was like, oh, making a film is much more like making a painting, and it's much more about rhythm and music and intuition than it is about, you know, this, <laughs> which is actually a deeply, you know, it's a necessary evil to have to sit down and type. I don't really enjoy it, but it's the only way to get the ideas onto another format where you can communicate it to someone. And actually, my whole thing with Prevenge was to kind of go to, to the actors and the people involved, like, don't intellectualise this process too much. This is a 
film about intuition and impulse and it's about colours and you know I, I had actually a, a Pinterest account which I would forward to the art department and um, the DOP and whoever and it was the films or the looks of various different paintings or artwork or music videos that I'd gone this is influencing me right now look at this painting that I found that really conveys this idea or look at this photo of this weird thing like um, and that was really useful just to get a tone and, a, and an atmosphere into people's heads rather than like this really heavily word-laden thing, you know? Yeah, no, because I wanted to ask all three of you about that, actually, which is as writers, you know, whether you feel there is that, there's that inherent weird tension about writing scripts for film because film is, it's not a medium which is about words. And so when you think about, you know, a, a writer-director like David Lynch, he will say, it's always been a huge source of frustration because to actually get any money to make the thing, I have to produce a script. And actually, the script is not really that relevant. I mean, it's actually kind of, it's slightly irrelevant and, if anything, kind of the opposite of what the movie should be. So, does, I mean, do you feel that's ever, I, I suppose, taking me creative tension, which is very helpful, or do you feel that's a, a problem and a headache that you're constantly having to put words on, on a page before you can put images on a screen? Well, I'll start with you. Um, I find writing just really annoying and just, <laughs> just, just and just like just so like oh just go away like just, <laughs> just, I hate it but sometimes it's fun but it, it it does I think if if you write and direct this is how I feel anyway like the directing part is fun because it's less lonely like you're it's collaborative it's kind of there's a type there's a clock on it so you've got to make decisions live, you know, and um, sort of adrenaline, whereas writing is just like, you've just got to keep doing it every day. And the script is just normally just a dick, and it's like, <laughs> not play, and then after a while, on its own terms, when you're kind of like, well, fine, let's not do it then, it will be like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, now, now you can, you know, like, so I, I sort of see where that comes from, and sometimes when I'm frustrated with a script, I will just do a 40-page mood board, you know, like, of images, to sort of be like, I am working, guys. I'll be like, yeah, but where's the script? It's like, it's all nothing. So I, uh, I do think it is just like... There's something about writing just, like, unreasonably hard. It's just like, fuck off, writing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you That's want what you can take. <laughs> Room full of writing. And, well, I mean, would you like writing to fuck off as well? Um, I mean, is it, is it a necessary evil? I mean, now you're going to say, I love yeah. it. This is my world and I love it. Um, and we're slagging it off. Um, I mean, I do love it, but it's just quite yeah. an abusive partner. It's, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, though. As soon as you let go, as soon as you go and have a piss or make a cup of tea, and you've written some massive long thing, scene, which you know is shit, but you're, you're really cross with yourself, that's when suddenly it comes to you, oh, I could just represent that with an image of a bonfire. <laughs> shit, that's it. And you, suddenly you scrap that whole scene, and, and it's replaced with something that's much more economical and elegant and beautiful, and... But maybe you had to do the writing of the really long scene to understand it and get it into your head before you could do that economical, brilliant thing. And I just, I just think it's, um, yeah, it's just, it is really hard script writing. And it's very, 
it's like, I, I felt like with Prevenge, I'd had some sort of epiphany of, it was very much what you were saying of like the constraints were brilliant. The fact I had no time to think about it. Suddenly this thing just leapt into life like a baby. It just had its own thing. And it just, I was like, it was like I was possessed. I was like channeling something. I was just like, this is the story and it's telling itself and it's that, this is it. And um, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes is that because the project's wrong or is it just you're in the wrong mindset? And I, I do think it's something, unfortunately, it happens with maturity as well, that some people are really lucky, like they're just like wonderkins here, like these two. But, you know, th there is a point where you sort of go, oh, it's, this is something bigger than me. And it's, it's almost like letting go of your ego in a way. I think it's quite a humbling process writing a script. And it's, it's this point where you go, the characters are more important than me or something. They're like my children. And... Um, if I'm being really true to myself and, and let go of my ego, the writing becomes better. And that's just a very difficult process. It's, it's a mature... This is why people write brilliant novels in their 40s, because it does take a long time to get to that emotional maturity point where you know you're writing stuff that is beyond yourself, I guess. Um, and that's what I felt with, with Prevenge. And with Sightseers, you know, there was a collaborative process, so there was a kind of... A, a losing of your ego because you're writing with someone else, I guess. And there was also quite a funny thing where we were deliberately playing on our egos. It's about a tussle between me and Steve creatively. The whole film is actually about that. But I can sort of look back on it and say that with a kind of certain maturity. Yeah, it's kind of about me and Steve's personality and how, how they work together. And that was a, a great thing to be able to channel and use. But are both of you writing scripts primarily to direct and also to appear in as well? Or would you, I mean, can you imagine actually just writing scripts for other directors? Um, if yeah. it was the right, yeah, if it was the right person. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. like a relationship. I don't know, I might think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Alice, you're coming from, a, as, we, as we've talked about, a very different place. I mean, yeah. you're a writer and you yeah. started out as a writer. So all that yeah. stuff, presumably, presumably yeah. you don't want writing to fuck off. You'd like to embrace so, it. Well, sometimes, sometimes, definitely. But, um, <laughs> it, it is hard. It is hard. It's definitely hard. I've, I've, sort of, I've sort of started telling myself this thing that you can tell when the writing or the making has cost cost the maker in some way when there's been certain that doesn't have to be painful all the time it can be it can be joyful like all of those experiences that you're talking about they're in the scripts and in those projects in ways that aren't necessarily easily identifiable it's something kind of atmospheric or and so I sort of I, I mean that gets me through when it's difficult I'm like okay well there's a reason it's this difficult it just you just need to go through something with it it is a it's a weird job it's a really weird job it's um but I don't I mean I've, I've got no interest in and I would be an awful director and I'd be an even worse actor so really so so I feel very certain that my job is the script and the words and the I'm very specific about every word, and so realising that that might not be the thing I saw on the screen was, was a bit of a lesson to sort of... Um, and I, it's, it just became writing a different kind of thing to a play. It's, I sort of felt like it had to be a really robust map so that the director could... You know, so that if he wanted to change something very quickly, like you said, like you've got, you've got to make decisions really quickly, that he would still have something really robust there, like a kind of, to you know, to come back to. Sure. Yeah. 
I mean, we've talked in all three of your cases, we've talked a little bit about limitations sometimes being helpful when you're writing scripts. And I wonder with, obviously, two weeks for revenge, there's a, there's a pretty concrete deadline there. But I wonder if you were working on a project and it actually hadn't been commissioned yet and you're just writing for, you know, in, in the optimistic hope this will become a film, will you give yourself a deadline? Because it's the risk that actually, with all the time in the world, this thing will just roll and roll and you'll never actually get it. You know, time is your enemy in that sense. Well. I just think there's no right answer to that because I think sometimes you might throw something away and actually what it needed was a bit more time, you know, just to sort of sit through that treacly bit. And other times, actually, you're trying to force something and you should just... It's kind of... I don't think there's a... right. I've sort of had this thing about experience where I sort of feel like it's, it's not that useful because it's normally different the next time. So... Whenever someone is sort of like, trust me because of my experience <laughs> and no other like arguments surrounding it, sort of like, well that's not that's not even we're not even having a conversation now. You're just saying that you've done things. <laughs> like, so I sort of feel that with my own experience where if I sort of go, Well, last time I did this and it didn't work, so I should do the opposite, or last time I did this and it did work, so I should do that again, that doesn't normally like help. So I sort of feel like it's case by case and you, you just can't, there's no right answer. You just have to surrender to, to basically showing up, like just showing up until, and also maybe the other way of looking at it is that there is no wrong decision. So if you leave it and you move on, that's the right thing to do. If you carry on with it, that's the right thing to do. Maybe it's more optimistic way. Sure. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. But in that kind of nuts and bolts sense, I mean, I wonder, I mean, Alice, do you, are you editing as you're writing or are you literally just, okay, let's, uh, very quickly, let's get a first draft done and then we can go back and start? I think I'm, I'm doing what Will was talking about of like trying to minimise the mattresses or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of didn't know what you meant, but I did. But like, um, it, I think that I'm already writing thinking, what do I really need? actually especially when this time factor is like with prevention I was it was so clear to me like well we can't do that so we, I'm not going to put that even bother putting that in you know um sorry what was your original <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I wondered how much time you would actually because obviously prevention was something you had to make you had to write it on a deadline yeah. but I wonder if you're actually if, if suddenly the light bulb goes off after this you think well actually am I now going to spend, and I don't have that ticking clock because there isn't someone like waving a cheque at me, but this is just my project, am I going to spend six months lavishing time on this thing or am I actually going to sit down and force myself to write it in two weeks because it will be better that way? Um, I would rather force myself to write it in two weeks. If I could, I would write everything really quickly. I think, you know, I envy Alice's kind of thing of like creating this robust map and, and valuing every word. That's because you're actually a proper writer. I don't think of myself as being a proper writer. I'm someone that I've got a creative idea and unfortunately I'm the person that's going to have to convey it to someone and I don't do that very well and I don't do it perfectly. But if I'm going to direct it, it means that I've got enough leeway to fix it while I'm directing it, while I'm working with actors, while I'm rehearsing, while I'm rewriting, whatever. So I'm just giving a very loose, shonky map. <laughs> it's a very, very random map that's done on a serviette with a, you know, a biro. And some of it's a bit inaccurate. And really, that's the, I'm just trying to get to the shooting bit, really, and the acting bit, which is the stuff that I love, and, and the intuition and... And it's just a different process of working. It's not, I don't see one way as being right or wrong. Um, and yes, yeah, so I'd rather write it quickly because I think a lot of my decisions 
suddenly come to light the, the, the right decisions. Whereas I'm not this, I'm not a novelist, so I'm not someone who's like, I need to work on my opus for two years. I couldn't afford to do that. I need someone to be paying me to do it for a start, or someone helping me financially in some small way, even if it's a tiny option deal on, on the script or on the treatment or something. I, you know, if, if someone's not really paying me to do it, an idea will just be one line on a page. I mean, I've literally got pages and pages of just like, um, two women detectives who are <laughs> investigating people's affairs. <laughs> like, you know, and that's it. And I'm like, if someone pays me to investigate that, I will write some more stuff about it. But if they don't, I'm not, it's just there. Well, I was going to ask about that, so I'm actually I'll make a conversational detour, actually, because I want to get an opinion from, from each of the three of you about writing on spec, which I'm, is probably a position that a lot of people in the room have been in, and what you're, you've, Alice, you've told us you're quite rigorous about writing on spec, and, you know, there won't be a lot of it going on. Alice, how about you? Yeah, not, no, not anymore. Uh, and again, I definitely, you know, did at the beginning, but, but plays. Um, and I had a lot of film meetings when I, you know, when I'd had sort of a couple of plays do quite well and you go and have film meetings and they ask you to write things on spec. And I was like, I can't afford to do that. Yeah. So how do you break through, in that case, how do, you, how do you get beyond that point of people asking you to write on spec to actually, and saying no to then them saying, okay, fine, we'll actually give you a bit of cash? Well, I mean, I, I did the eye features thing and, and the first thing, I wrote a treatment on spec for that and that was the first time I did that. But that was because I, I felt really confident in the project and the director and I think it just felt like the right time. You know, before that, it was, I was working like two jobs in a in pubs and was nannying and I didn't have time to write anything for free. I was, you know, writing tiny plays for a hundred quid. Sure, <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. I mean, Will, when you were talking about Black Pond, I mean, it sounded like it was almost like the, the secret there was to make something and then let the industry kind of catch up with you afterwards. So actually you become a filmmaker and a writer and then suddenly people want to give you money because th that train is already moving. Yeah, I, I think you sort of do need to write on spec at first, but you shouldn't forever and I think there is like it is dodgy territory because of that conversation of like you have to at first so sometimes there is a world in which that's exploited where writers are asked to write on spec where actually they shouldn't be really um, the only reason why we could afford to make Black Pond was because I took a job on casualty which I took partly because I thought well this is a regular income and then I'll be able to do my own stuff and that is basically exactly what happened. So afterwards, it also meant I could even take like six months off to edit it pretty much full time, uh, doing like a bit of private tutoring on the side, but not much else, you know? So, and Tom had a job at an advertising agency and was running on commercials and stuff. So we sort of, again, just practically had built up. We just saved up basically to, to make the film and we raised money as well to actually shoot the film because that was like, I think it was 20 grand or something we raised. Um, but in terms of buying our own time, it was from doing other work. Um, and also, like, weirdly, it was quite helpful to be on Casualty because it made me quite angry. <laughs> so, like, it was quite, it was quite sort of helpful fuel to, I just have to make something else, you know? <laughs> what, what was so miserable about Casualty? I don't need to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I was always going to ask the question. But. I learned a lot from it, actually, to be fair. Like, just the nuts and bolts of shooting, 
like, you don't need to follow these rules, but look, this is how it feels to be on a set. This is, you know, what... And what's good and bad, like, I sort of noticed, the, like, that the, when the sets were happiest, there, was, there wasn't really a divide between the cast and the crew. It felt like everyone was on the same team. And then when sort of shoots started to fall apart was when it was like, oh, those people over there and then people over there. And, and so, like, I learned a lot from it, actually. And also paid for some time off to make a film. And having that kind of practical insight, I'm guessing that was invaluable, though. And I wanted to ask each of you, actually, about... We've touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to talk more about it, about budget and having a budget in mind and being aware of... Like, when we were talking about the screenwriting books that nobody bothers to read, there is... One of them, the old William Goldman book, there is a bit where he's talking about someone sent him a script and there's like a, it, the first scene is like a herd of giraffes going down Times Square and you just think, well, this is clearly never going to happen because <laughs> you start costing it. And I wondered, and because actually thinking about it, Black Pond, Revenge and Lady Macbeth were all projects where there was a very specifically lean budget and it feels like as a viewer that actually that was really helpful to the film. It actually kind of economised and narrowed ideas down. But when you're writing... Are you thinking in those terms? Are you constantly thinking not just okay, I can't have the giraffes in Times Square, but also there is going to be there is there is stuff that I would like to do imaginatively that maybe just can't happen. Um, I think I, I think I just made it a good rule, like from the from the beginning. So uh, we we knew we wanted to make a period film that didn't feel like a traditional period film. We didn't want those kind of big sweeping exterior shots or those ballroom scenes or you know lots of extras clearly not playing real people in the background. So that that was useful. So we sort of wanted to make a very austere, like, thriller with a much smaller cast of characters, and that felt exciting as a beginning for a period drama. So making <coughs> making those rules from the beginning was, was really good. So it sounds like that was integral to the actual creative yeah. process. Yeah, yeah, <coughs> I think... I th yeah, I, don't, I, I think it didn't... It wasn't really a problem because we wanted to avoid all those tropes. With period film. Sure. Yeah. And with Prevenge as well. I mean, Prevenge feels like, I mean, it was a tight story. I mean, had someone come along at a certain point while you were writing and said, actually, you can have three times as much money, would that have been, I mean, <laughs> it sounds like a silly question, but would that have been helpful? Um, <coughs> I mean, I think it's very similar that actually when you adopt um, the, the constraints you have as assets in a way and yeah. go, well, this is what's going to make it different to these other things. So with Prevenge, I, I, I didn't do the. You know, the, the wise thing to do would be not to do a period film mm -hmm. as your, you know, low-budget debut film. The wise thing to do would not be to uh, have murders in uh, a low-budget film because sure. that's not the easiest, cheapest thing. And also I had loads of locations. So I knew I was kind of pushing it. You know, it, the, the better thing to do would be to be in one house or one location. And I was like, well, I've got, like, ten different locations and I know that that's going to be tricky but what I can do is I can make the scenes really long so that uh, basically I wrote the script going uh, this is going to be a series of two-handers so each scene is going to be about 10 minutes long with one other actor and we'll get one actor to come in every day and we'll kill them in the morning <laughs> and then we will do some dialogue in the afternoon and we'll have done all the difficult stuff in the morning and we will do all the fun stuff in the afternoon of like improvising and messing around and like making each other laugh and um, doing all the fun stuff. And, um, and that was how it worked out. But I mean, in a way, it's funny because when people review the film, they quite often don't mention that, you know, like they don't say, oh, it's a series of two-handers. Like, I don't know, what's that? It's coffee and cigarettes film or whatever that... It's, it's as stylized as that. It is like a it's almost like theatre pieces. And that's how I wrote it. I wrote it as sort of a series of theatre pieces of a stranger meeting different people. 
And, um, and people don't really notice, which is quite amazing, really, that they don't notice. But um, for me, I, I like that that constraint is there because, it, again, it gave me this clarity of, like, when you're screenwriting, each scene is just a window. You, you're just, you have to know why you are giving this window a glimpse into this person's life. And, and really the economy of only showing this person when she was killing these people <laughs> or when she was having, like, a little bit of a psychological breakdown moment and that there's a there's an economy and a cleanness to that which really helped the narrative and again it sort of took took the narrative out of my hands in a way I wasn't agonizing about about it it was just it just seemed obvious yeah so it sounds like what you're saying I mean it had this enormous bag of money falling on you halfway through the writing process I mean it's not that you know individual scenes would have changed but actually you'd have started writing something completely different. And does it, does it make that creative process easier then? Because you just think, okay, instead of having multiple choices, I've it, got like it two. It made the rewrites easier because there were no rewrites, but <laughs> or very little. Because, I mean, there will be a point where you're, if you're in a long development process where people will go, I don't think you need this scene or this scene or this scene. But I'd already done that. I sort of leapfrogged that, that point by going, we're only going to see this. And... Um, and, and that was really useful, actually, because, you know, there is always some flabby stuff that you're like, why did I think this scene was really important? It so isn't. It so makes this bit drag. And really, when you're doing a low-budget shoot, your aim is to not be cutting that in the edit, to be doing it before it even wastes your time shooting it. It's a, it's a really generic question, but I just wonder, and I suppose it would apply to anything creative. I mean, usually there's that sense that you kind of, you have this burst of creativity and this burst of productivity and you make something and then you step back from it and actually there's an argument to say you come back to it months later and then you look at it and it's like it's set and you can start. But often with filmmaking, you're not going to get that luxury because actually if you're working on commission, you finish the script and someone starts going off and making the film. I mean, is there an argument, if you can, to try and work in a window to say, however long, few days, a few weeks to actually say, okay, I'm going to come back, I'm going to write this, put it over there, go and live a life and then come back to it. I think if you can do that, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I actually did that with the edit of Prevent that, well, because I'd got a baby by that stage and the baby needed some attention and things. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I actually, you know, I, I had to step away from the rushes uh, just to give birth. <laughs> thing I could have had and it was brilliant because I think a lot of first-time filmmakers wouldn't have that luxury it'd be a bit more like no we're on the clock you've got to get this edited you've got to get this done um, just give birth guys but yeah so I mean for me it was like amazing to be able to come back to your material and go oh I sort of forgotten what this was and this is a good bit that bit's shit well, I don't get rid of that bit that's so <laughs> obvious you know it's like someone else has made it sure. and actually I saw a talk with Scorsese and he said a really similar thing that you should try to get as far away from those rushes as you can for a bit like go on holiday and just almost forget what you know about the project and you know we we're talking about this earlier as well of like just never going into something going I've done this so I I've learned from this 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 is what it Every project is new. It's like a child. It's like every project is new. You have to go in with a humility of like, I don't know what this is. I have no idea. And the, the less you can feel like you know, I think that's a good place to be in because you're all in the same position. You, the editor, the, the producer, whoever, you're all going, we're all trying to get to know what this project is. What's the best first version of this project? It's like, um, I don't know all the answers. We're going to find them out, you know. 
But it's interesting you say that because I think particularly with script writing, there are, as we've talked about, you know, the bookshelves filled with stuff saying actually you're supposed to do the same thing again and again and just fill in that it, there's a formula and you're supposed to just kind of, you know, colour it in as you go along, yeah. you know, which is, always seems slightly crazy. I mean, you know, script books can be useful. I, I, I sometimes have used them when I'm in a real knot with something and I just kind of use them as a safety net. Either I look at them and go, no, that's bollocks, I'm going to do the opposite, which sort of did with, a bit with Prevenge. Um, or you look at it and go, oh, that's what was going wrong with it. It's just like a plumber's manual or something, you know, or a car mechanics manual. Um, you know, it might help you, it might, might not. Like. I'm aware that I've hogged the conversation. I want to hand it over. But the one thing that we haven't really talked about, and I think we probably should, is notes. Um, so I wanted to kind of gauge each of your facial expressions at the mention of the <laughs> word first. I mean, first of all, before we talk, talk about the formal process, you know, with, with, with production companies and so on, I wondered if you had people who just weren't even necessarily involved in the industry or in the creative process who just, whose opinions you relied on. Yeah, my, par my partner reads everything. Okay. He's a, a theatre director, but yeah, I... Yeah, he reads everything. He's always the first person to read everything. And at what stage? I mean, literally as soon as the first draft? Or I mean, literally, is it page by page? No, 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 no. Never page by page. He has to read the whole, whole thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll stare at him until he finishes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really happy relationship. Yeah, no, he... Uh, no, was, well, as soon as I've finished it, uh, I'll normally wait a day and then I'll send it to him. And then he, he's, he reads it very quickly. Very okay. quickly. And I suppose yeah. the, the key thing there is just unvarnished honesty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's really good at that. <laughs> How about you? Um, I think it's so important to find the right person to read your script because, you know, having done long development processes, it's so easy to get disheartened by the notes that you get back. And sometimes yeah. they are rubbish. They're absolutely rubbish. And it's really important to distinguish between um, someone who's trying to make you give them a different product completely or someone who's trying to help you to make the best version of that product. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I had, with Prevenge, uh, you know, my unofficial script editor was Gareth Tunley, who'd done The Goal, and that was because I thought his script was amazing. I've, I've known him for years, but I didn't know he had it in, them, in him to write these incredible screenplays. And so I, I, I also know he's got very similar taste to me. So he knows what I'm trying to make, and he knows when I'm failing, and he knows when I'm getting it right. And so he'd sort of skip over whole chunks going, don't need to give you any notes on this bit. And you'd be like, great. And then other bits, this bit's shit, this character, I hate it. And I'd be like, oh, God, that means I really am failing. Whereas other people might give you all sorts of different notes. Like, they might say, I just was confused. I didn't know what was happening. And you're like, that, you're supposed to feel that way at that point. That's correct. <laughs> so I think just having, like, a really trusted... Someone who's got the same taste as you as well. And unfortunately, if you're getting money out of people, you're going to have to swallow notes. That's just the name of the game. That's our job, is to but really trying to pick out what's significant and what is... If, if everyone's saying, this bit, I've got a problem with it, and they're giving you all sorts of different reasons why, none of them are, are possibly right, but there is a problem with that bit. But you're the person who's got to work out what, why it's not working and is it something earlier that's affecting it? Or, you know, is it, you're the only person who can solve these problems, basically, because you're the director, which is a scary thing but it's also a really good thing because you can at the end of the day just go I get rid of all of these voices telling me what to do only I can solve this problem because only I know what the map is for the destination that I'm trying to get to 
I mean, is there a case with a good note where it's it's like something that on some level back in the corner of your mind you already knew and it's just it's taken someone else to articulate it? Or have there been cases where someone said something completely out of nowhere that just had genuinely never occurred to you before? And it's like, oh, of course. Yeah, both of those okay. things, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about writing being a lonely process. So I wonder if there is, you know, before a kind of buffer, I suppose, between you and the commissioner, of just someone else, another voice. Um, well, I quite like notes because it's the bit where, where you get to hang out with some other people for a bit. <laughs> um, and I think that's true that often uh, the, you might not agree with what they've identified as the problem, but it's a, it's a clue to that there is an underlying problem somewhere. I also think that there's like just a compulsion, a human compulsion to try and solve problems. So often um, producers, script editors, execs will give you a, a proposed solution, which is, is not right at all. And I think often that's what gets in the way because your brain goes, what on earth are you talking about? But actually, if you just ignore the solution part, the point that they're making is completely valid and very helpful. Um, I don't know, I feel like Tom and I, who we also made a second film, The Darkest Universe, together. And on The Darkest Universe, we sort of opened it out to quite a lot of people who aren't, quote unquote, in the industry, you know, um, people who don't share the same taste almost mm -hmm. like deliberately. And some, again, sometimes that was helpful and they'd say something like, have a perspective on it that you hadn't really thought about. And other times it meant that we sort of got bogged down in trying to solve a thing in a very specific way. So I don't know, I think like obviously you need notes. Um, and normally, I think what it comes down to is it's just got like the people that you're making it with. And if you get on with them and, because that's the worst I think is when unspoken for like six months, you're actually all working on completely different projects. <laughs> and like subtly, they're trying to turn your thing into a different thing, but presenting the notes as if they're to help you achieve your aims. And those are the dangerous situations, I think. And I feel like you've, got to, you've just got to be, go through a few of those before mm -hmm. you start to get better at working out, oh, actually, it, not, no one's a bad person in this room. We just shouldn't work together. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we should never meet again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we actually had something that was quite useful like that with Prevenge, actually, saying that sometimes bad notes can be really useful. Like, um, we were at a stage of, in the edit where we were a bit like, what is this film? What is it? And I think that's actually completely normal mm. and probably really right. Um, and you just go, what is it? And you, so you send it out to a few people. And um, the editor said, can I send it to my friend who's a comedy director? Because we were worrying if it was funny enough. And part of me was going, I know that there's serious bits in it. That's what I wanted to do. That's my original intention. But I'm, I'm nervous about it now. So we sent it to this comedy director. And I feel a bit bad about this guy because I've talked about him a bit. <laughs> and he sent back these notes going, um, you need to make us laugh within the first 30 seconds. He sort of said, I don't know if this is what you're going for, so I might be completely wrong with this. You need to make us laugh within the first 30 seconds with a gag, physical or otherwise. Um, you need to know exactly why she's doing what she's doing within the first 15 minutes, otherwise we don't like her. <laughs> um, and it just went on and on. And I was like, this is the Judd Apatow guide to this film. And actually, if this guy made this film, he'd probably have to make these decisions because he wouldn't be 
an auteur, he'd be coming at it from pregnant woman takes revenge. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. I just, just kind of like, I just looked at it and I was like, my first instinct was fury. And then I kind of said to the editor, do you know, this is really useful because this is all the things we're not going to do. And, and, but maybe we're not being strong enough in our decisions. Maybe we need to be more bold in going, this is why we're not doing what we're going to, you know, and actually it was sort of a, a manual of everything that we were going to do the opposite of. Because I was like, well, I'm not trying to make that comedy. I'm not trying to make Throw Mama from the Train or whatever. <laughs> this is a weird <laughs> film. It's a weird film. It's supposed to be a weird film. I, sometimes I wonder about this guy who was so kind to take the time out to bloody watch the film and give us notes. Sometimes I think if he watched, he, he sees all he the facts of the film and just goes, well, bloody hell, shoot me, because I thought it was a bit wrong and it's done all right. I think that <laughs> is such a thing, though, that if you're doing something weird... It, the audience has to know that it's on purpose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They have to know that these are all decisions, that you're in control of it, basically. Because I think sometimes, sometimes I watch films uh, and I sort of wonder if the, the weirdest bits are kind of misdirection to like just disguise the fact that they actually haven't worked it out. <laughs> so they're like, well, it's so weird. I'm a genius. But it's like, <laughs> but, but, but what's the story or like, what are you trying to say here? And it's like, oh, look at this. I suppose it's like, it's like ambiguous <laughs> endings as well. And you always just think, is that just because you haven't thought yeah. of the ending? But it yeah. is incredibly open-ended. And, you know. I sometimes think of it like, I, I, don't, um, I don't take drugs, but I think of it like if you, if like the difference between in a group, everyone is on the same drug versus when you're hanging out with people who are on drugs and you're completely sober, which is normally the one I am. <laughs> and it's just so boring. Like they think it's so interesting. What's, and you're just like, but I don't know, what, what are you doing? You're just like sitting there babbling on. <laughs> so it's like the film has to sort of get everyone into that same space. If the film is on drugs and the audience is sober, then it's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, we're all on drugs here today. Yeah. Totally fine. I mean, I wonder actually with all of your work, I mean, because other filmmakers I know have said the one thing they get a lot, and it seems like whatever the story is, the one note they will get from executives is make the, make the lead character more relatable. And I wondered in, in all of your projects, you've got characters who, by that yardstick, there would be an issue. So I wondered how you resolved that. I mean, presumably with Lady Macbeth, from the word go, yeah. I mean, this is not, it's not a cuddly story. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, 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 empathise is fine. We can talk about empathy. We, I, we could not talk about whether she was likeable. That just, like, it's, I mean, I find that so irritating anyway. But, yeah, it, it, uh, thankfully, no, I think it's that thing you were saying, everyone was making the same film, so it was, it was okay. That wasn't, that wasn't a problem. Empathy became a bit, like, there was a bit, you know, of disagreement about that, about how important that was kind of carry her through but yeah i mean i wanted to ask all three of you actually just before we, we go to questions really just you already kind of answered the question alice but i'm going to ask again it's that issue of how once that sort of blizzard of notes starts up how you kind of hold on to because you can have lots of different people all having different opinions you know yeah. or you can have one person trying to steer you in a very different direction and i wonder at that point how do you hold on to and make sure that you know the core of what you wanted to write survives, that whatever changes are made around that call, whatever scenes are kind of reworked, what you started writing and what you actually believed in as the writer yeah. ends up on screen. I mean, I think there's lots of different tactics, but the, the thing that I do with every single, every single script, every single thing I ever write is I always, any, any redraft, even if I've only got a note on one word, on one scene, I write the whole thing out again, because, because I think 
that that will that really helps with those notes. It also stops anything feeling like an in, a, like a quite a big insertion or a removal or because rhythm is so important. You can keep an eye on all your characters, um, and and I think it, I think you just I don't know. It makes me feel like I can take the notes better. So you're not yeah you're not kind of tempering with what's already there. No, I'm not kind of going thing. in to fix that note for that exec and that note for that person and oh, the editor didn't like that and the lead actress is feeling funny about that scene like you're sort of then you're going to end up with something that just feels tonally completely wrong and you're going to be really far away from the thing that you started to write i think you have to feel in control of every word breath moment whatever on the page so i always write everything out again I mean, Alice, you already kind of rather brilliantly answered that question, but I mean, it sounded like you were kind of, the response was to basically just focus in all the more kind of fervently on what that original tone or what that original idea had been. Yeah, I mean, um, I felt sort of a kind of responsibility to, to maintain the tone. I think it is like this likability thing mm. as well. Like, as a, as a female director and writer, I was like, you are not going to tamper with my fucking character. Mm. And... I'm not going to change it. Um, and I, I had this slightly with sightseers as well that, um, I mean, even Ben sort of said to me, oh, I'm a bit worried, is the character going to be likeable? And I was like, ah, red rag to a ball. But I was a bit like, don't worry about that because I'm, I'm playing the character. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry about that bit. Because, you know, it's, it's like empathy. It's a, it's a very difficult term. It's sort of like, I kind of think, um, I think, you know, film is a tool whereby you're forced into someone else's shoes. So if you're looking at someone's face for long enough and you see into their eyes, you're going to go on that journey with them. And it doesn't, that's, that's the whole point, is like you get to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. It's like virtual reality, you know. You don't have to make the same decisions as the character. You can just enjoy them making the decisions you wouldn't make. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, I think for me as well, like with Prevenge, I was like, I want this to have a drama element because I haven't written drama before. I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge the audience to kind of... Uh, take some of the serious bits. And that was an experiment, that was a huge experiment for me, because I was like, oh, comedy horror, people know where they are with that. But then adding an element of pathos and drama, and uh, I'm a bit nervous people might not go for that. So, but that was really an exercise in sort of holding my nerve with that, because uh, it might not have worked, or it, it, we might have got rid of it. If I'd had people who were a bit more controlling, execs or a studio for example paying for it they might well have gone you've got to change those bits or make them funnier or whatever let me just ask you two before we go to, to audience questions i, I mean obviously to go to the loo i'm so oh, sorry because there's people <laughs> probably you need do you need the loo as well i've been the in for a while can you, do, <laughs> can, you can do shifts so you can answer yeah. the question no, and then, I'm, and then just, I'm just gonna i'm just gonna hold it in yeah fine i'm i mean i've been doing it into the star this is why we're all looking quite tense the only um, thing is like there was these there was all these chocolates outside beforehand and i tried a 100 percent strength chocolate told you not to do that and it's made me feel really weird. So <laughs> you're not supposed to eat 100% chocolate. Yeah, it's clearly like a very bad idea. Panic attack. For that. <laughs> In that case, well, actually, so fine. I'm going to continue the conversation. Anyway. Um, I mean, I wonder. You two are in very different situations in this sense because we've talked about notes, and obviously, as a scriptwriter, one of the notes that you're going to get, in many ways, the most important note, is the notes <laughs> you're going to get from the director. So clearly, for you, this is William Oldroyd. But for you, this is you. So I wondered about the relationship between, you know, when you're working as a writer and then a director, once you've had that script and you've gone through that incredibly laborious process and you have the script ready, when you're then on set, do you then treat this as like something you had nothing to do with and actually you just kind of rip the whole thing up where necessary and, you know, you separate yourself from 
Will the scriptwriter, will the director? Uh, yes, but on Black Pond in the Darkest Universe, Tom, who was the co-director, he would always be the first to read everything. Sure. And so he was like a big part of the script writing process. And on Flowers, it would be the producer, Naomi Dupair, and the script editor, Katie Copter. Like, they'll read everything first. So there's always like, it's sort of ex you know, expanding circles of people who, so it's never like you're completely on your own. But I, I, in answer to the second half of your question, yes, I think there is a little bit of a kind of a, dividing yourself into I find like I apart from like very specific lines which for whatever reason feel like it's actually got to be those words I generally I'm quite relaxed about because when an actor comes on set you know like and they hear it differently it's sort of normally better they say it how they hear it and it's only very occasionally where I feel like it will change the whole sense of the scene or if I just think do you know what I really like these six words in this order. Can you just can we just try? You know, like, but that's quite rare, I think. That yeah, I mean, Alice, I was going to ask you because obviously you've got the the opposite experience, which is you know you write the script and then yeah. the script is goes off with the director, and you've already you know you talked a bit about having that collaborative relationship yeah. with William Oldwood already. But then there is the sense that the script is done, and then the actors are on set, and yeah. it becomes a different thing. Yeah. Were you physically on set at all, or did you keep away? I did come. I did come on set for a little bit, um, just for a few days, but. Um, yeah, yeah, and I did some rewriting while I was there. Right. Um, but I mean, again, again it's totally. I think I think my job mostly finishes on the page, and then you have to totally trust your actors. And also, it's the it's the best feeling in the world when someone says a line and you can't quite remember writing it because they've said it. They've brought something else to it. That's like an incredibly exciting moment. So, yeah, I wasn't there, kind of being like it's. It is not. It is. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I totally do in theatre. Like, oh, okay. I definitely do in theatre. So yeah, that was a that was a moment. We we're just talking about whether, and Alice. I mean, I don't know whether you're as a director how kind of callous you end up being about your own script. And actually think, oh, that was this, that was then. This is now. And actually, I can just change things willy nilly. Um, I think there's certain key lines in a scene that you have to have, mm -hmm. basically, which are going to be your springboards into the next scene or whatever, and. But I'm never precious. I'm like I'm. I'm always like I'm not Shakespeare. So I, you know, I'm not a proper writer. I don't. I don't write poetry into my script. I wish I did. And, and maybe there'll be a point where I, I do feel more that way. Um, when I've spent you know five years writing something, and I'm a bit like, no, it's it's like this. Um, but you know, at the moment, I'm not. I, I'm not like that. And I, I very much like get performers in because I want them to bring my stuff to life. But. I, I kind of think comedians, and this is why I love working with comedy actors, and, and Will's the same, you know, working with really interesting people, that I, I kind of feel like classical actors are like classical musicians, and comedians are like jazz musicians. And they come in, and they you want them to do their amazing solo. You want them to kind of put it in their rhythm. So I, I'm kind of like, say it as you want to say it. I'm not going to stop you from paraphrasing. Um, I just really want you to get the meaning across and, and the, the... Also, for me as an actor, I'm there on set, so I'm sort of like, say something to me that shakes me out of being too used to this scene because I've written it, you know? Like, say something to me that kind of jolts me into what the actual reality of the scene is. So sometimes that can be as simple as someone saying, do you want a cup of tea instead of, like, here's your tea? Or so, you know, and it just gets a response out of you, which is very natural. and. Um, Performance-wise, I find that quite useful, and directing-wise, it's useful as well. Sure. I've hogged the conversation, I know. This is the time I'm going to stop. Um, if you do have a question, please put your hand up. There are microphones which will 
rove. There was hand went up very quickly just, just here at the end of this row. Hey, everyone. Can you hey. hear me? Hey. Um, I just wanted to ask about early on in your careers. Um, I don't know whether you knew people in the industry already, but just kind of what you did to proactively meet people and network and what it was that you really held on to, um, perhaps when you didn't hear back from things that you really wanted or the proactive steps you took. Um, yeah. I, sorry, I made eye contact with you first. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that was quite good is I joined shooting people. When I was making lots of short films for no money and just my own ideas with a um, director called Jacqueline Wright, uh, we joined shooting people and it was just a network for... You know, they actually do networking events, like where you just go and have drinks with people. And I've met brilliant editors and various people through doing that. Um, I, it's different because I'm a performer. So I, I go to like Edinburgh, Edinburgh Festival. Brilliant place to just be hanging out if you're definitely going to come into contact with commissioners and producers. And you're just hanging around. So you just do end up meeting people. Um, I think it's harder if you're like a writer, actually. If you're, I mean, you're involved in the theatre, so mm. you're kind of meeting people out of the theatre. But um, I think if you're a solitary writer and you're at home and you're not just getting out there and getting your stuff seen, I think that's quite tricky. And I think you have to kind of really force yourself to maybe put on plays and do read-throughs and do, yeah. fr you know, put on fringe theatre and stuff. You'd yeah. be able to talk better about that. But yeah, d yeah. I mean, theatre has been a huge help in that that sense. Going to theatre and then hanging out at the bar afterwards. Um, making friends with other writers has been like one of the best things um, and that's just sometimes literally from writing to writers via their agent or directly or um, or going to see something of theirs and you know talking to them if they're there. Writers are really I think really supportive of each other because there's sort of an understanding that we've all got such different voices that I, do, I don't feel in competition with writers as as much as I think actors sometimes do. I think I think I think yeah. sort of I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I don't know. I, again, I think that's more about theatre. Uh, you know, sort of that. Um, what else? BBC Writers' Room was really good at sort of moving between theatre and screen. There's lots of opportunities on there. Um, and and my I have to say my agent was really brilliant at when I said you know what, I'm interested in moving more in this direction or this direction, can you, like... Or, or even just that, I'd really like to meet this person, can you try and make that happen? He was really helpful at that, so... Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. But I think writers are good, good people to hang out with. Everyone's nice to hang out with, but writers, yeah. Well, I, I never... I entered quite a lot of, you know, schemes and competitions and stuff, never got anywhere with any of them. Um, also, I find the networking very difficult. So, like, you know, hey, come and just meet people. I can't, I can't really do that. So, like, that was a sort of... But on the other hand, like, now, like, you can get a camera quite cheaply. And, uh, like, so I suppose I found that it was more through doing that I learnt. And often I would, I would meet people and then they wouldn't be interested and then I'd meet them couple of years later, I'm exactly the same person with exactly the same ability. And for some reason, to them, I'm a completely different person. And that's quite a weird feeling. I don't know. I feel like it's almost like it's just a sort of um, uh, 
how many, like if, if you're good at being rejected, then you, you've got a good shot. <laughs> because it's just like part of the course, isn't it? It's just constant. Yeah. It's just constant. Like it's almost like I feel like actually that is two things. I feel like the sort of two big um, oh right moments is a like that fear of rejection and just getting used to failure is so important. I think, and a lot of the time, people who are very gifted and talented are so worried about the feedback or looking stupid or that it just gets in the way of the first step. And I think for me, weirdly, it was doing um, live comedy, like, uh, and just being like, well, I don't know what else to do this evening, so I'm going to go to this place. There's four people. No one's laughing. And, <laughs> and then being like, but I want to do it again, weirdly. And that sort of conditioned me to humiliation. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing is just the time aspect, where I feel like, say, for example, if I was like, oh, I might try and paint a picture this weekend. And then it's like, Oh God, I've been doing it for four hours and it's still shit. Clearly, I'm not I'm not able to paint. It's like that realization that actually you've got to do that for six months, you know, like 13 hours every day, and then you'll have like a first draft. Mm. It's like, okay, so that's basically the difference between kind of doing it for real and an amateur is like that you're actually doing it all day, every day, you know? Like yeah, it's that idea that actually once the idea, you know, we talked about the idea at the start of all this, you know, you actually have to write the idea down, you actually have to produce and finish the project as well and left it and leave it you know, as a real thing. I, I think it's also that thing of like, I mean, coming to the point of doing Prevenge, I really had sort of given up on the fact that I was going to direct a film. I kind of thought I, I've got to choose between having a baby or, or directing films. You can't do both because you don't hear about loads of female directors with tiny children because, you know, it just doesn't really happen. So I was sort of like I'd given up. And actually, I think giving up sometimes, that feeling of like, oh, fuck, it's all shit. I've been rejected so many times. I give up. And then you really have to decide, do you want to do it just for you, like just for fun? And actually, when you do the work for you, that's the best work probably. That you, It's that letting go thing of like, I don't care who reads this. This is, this is what I want to do. And suddenly, lots of crap falls away. The scales fall away from your eyes and you go... Oh, yeah. And, you know, like, Prevenge is probably my most personal project. And I, I've spent my whole career as an actress going, I play many different characters. I'm a chameleon. Uh, <laughs> it's never me. It's always someone else, you know. And actually, the truth is, it's always me. It's just me with a different wig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone said, actually, Richard Ayuardi said that to me when we were doing an Edinburgh show. He was, I, I was like, I don't know what my accent is in this scene. And he was like... It doesn't matter what accent you have. You are funny. The accent is not funny. You are funny. So whatever you do, accent or not, it's going to be funny. And that, and that sort of stuck with me, actually. I was like, you know, I, I do think that's, as an artistic, as a creative, you know, what you are going to do is what you're going to do. And really, it's about getting to the emotional place, and it's really hard, where you don't care about the rejections. You're going to do it anyway, and, and, and your thing is going to be your thing. You know, if you were Vincent van Gogh, you you just got to paint that painting, and maybe no one ever recognises you for it, but that's their problem. <laughs> I suppose you, it, you, you know. And it sounds simplistic, but, I mean, when you were to describe it just now, sort of just writing it for yourself, I mean, the thing is you will know what pushes your buttons and what you want to do, whereas when you're constantly second-guessing, trying to imagine what someone else wants, you never know what someone else wants. You know what you want. Yeah, and, and just getting to the truth, the sincerity of what it is you're trying to do. It's like, you know, sometimes when I hear people's pictures and it's very, like, well, it's a, a Marvel 
style action thing. And, like, and I'm like, they're very much catering to what they think can get made. But especially when you're starting out and it's a low-budget project, you've got nothing to lose by making your own thing. Don't try to be conforming to a multi-million dollar project because you haven't got that budget. Try to stand out from that thing. You, you, there's no rules. You, you, you're making your own rules. Like Make it as weird and as strange and unusual and mind-shattering as as it can be, like, you know, that you're not selling it to anyone. You don't have to sell your soul right at the beginning. It's about what you want to do. Like, that's the only way it's going to happen. So you might as well really put yourself on that page and, and really your, your own voice, basically. We've got time for a couple more questions. Um, yes, over here in the fourth row back. Um, linked to um, writing for other directors and um, the relevance of the script, um, would you kind of lean more towards... Uh, director who kind of is now known for respecting the writer and kind of sticking to what's written, or would you kind of take a risk and work with someone like Fincher, who's known for you know kind of throwing it out the window and then starting from page one again and and kind of almost butchering what you spent a long time kind of creating? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if I definitely work with him if he wants to, um, <laughs> I'm up for it. Uh, I think. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's got to be it's got to be the right people because it's it's not it's it's not like a novel or a document that then someone else reads it and, they, and it's about that experience. It's you're you're making something else. There will be hopefully there's a reason that that director wants to work with me or you know whoever. Like it's it isn't all necessarily about what finishes on the page. Hopefully it's kind of in the conversations and then. The, I have to say, watching Lady Macbeth was felt. I felt like I had been part of the most genuinely collaborative process of my career, and I that was really surprised. I wasn't expecting that when I started writing it, because I think theatre is always thought to be much more collaborative, and it just I just don't think it is. It just, and so that's really exciting, and it's really exciting that there are things in there that I don't remember if it was my idea or Will's idea or you know the art department's idea. Like it's it's. You know, we all made it together. Obviously, that was a really good experience. Maybe it would be a bad experience, but you have to. Be, I think you have to work with people that you respect, rather than someone who you think is going to just do do your words well. Or you know, you've, it's got to be exciting. It's got to be about the thing at the end for me. I've made these three talk much more than writers should have to, so we're probably going to make room for, for one more question. Yes, down here. Just down here, for the last question. I just wanted to ask, what do you do at the start of a project, let's say, when you've got an idea, so you know kind of roughly what you want to write about, maybe even know some of the characters you want to write, but you don't have a narrative, and you're thinking maybe it's this or maybe it's this. How do you get past maybe it's this to this is what it is? Million dollar question. <laughs> I don't think there's an answer. I think it's just, it's just showing up, isn't it? I think. I think everyone is different. So some people, some people would probably get something out of uh, reaching for, you know, like a rule book, even mm -hmm. if it's temporarily, mm. to sort of just get things going and then you throw it away. Other people, that will sort of tie them down and they need to approach it. I feel like it is... It, and also, there's no guarantee that it, that will happen. And it's almost like just accepting that, that maybe it's not a good idea. Um, I just feel like, again, I just feel like my experience is in a way not helpful because A, I'm not you, and B, it's not even me now. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I feel like there's no rule. It's just, all you have to do is show up, have enough energy and sort of want to do it enough that you'll take the beating from the project. Um, it's a bit like if you're friends with like some kind of monster and it just sort of, it just beats <laughs> the shit out of you every day. <laughs> but then eventually sometimes it's like, oh, you can get to ride on its back and it feels quite nice, you know? Like, just, if you, you just gotta have the shit kicked out of you for ages. And then sometimes, sometimes it's good, <laughs> and often it's not. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think um, uh, on top of having the shit kicked out of you every day, you could do an exercise where you, <laughs> <laughs> where you tell a friend what it's about, and that might help. I know that sounds a bit facile. There's all sorts of script books that help with that, but like, you know, some, I, like I had a script editor who said to me, "Oh, your stories are always about transformations of someone coming into their power." And I didn't really know that about myself. So it might be that there's a story there and you just haven't found it yet. You say, like, maybe you've got characters, you've got a seed of an idea. You just don't know what the, you don't know what the main message of that film is. But it's like, you know, it's very hard to come to that point. It's like a, a, an epiphany in your own personal therapy or something like that. It's like, you know, you talk about the Shawshank Redemption. Okay, it's a guy who goes to prison and he ma makes friends with a prisoner, blah, blah, blah. Is that what it's really about? No, that's, that's the plot. But what it's really about is how innocence can be redeemed, blah, 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 you know, something like that, you know. And actually finding that message, sometimes you don't get that until you've actually finished the film. I mean, I honestly think that. I mean, I don't really know. There's lots of things that Prevenge is about, and there's lots of people that would tell me lots of different things. And I'm like, you're all right. That, you know, there's no wrong answer. Um, if there's a burning story within you, I kind of think it's worth... Uh, trying to beat that out and, and, and just tell a story, tell a, tell a story that feels satisfying to you. And it might be that after working on it, maybe your beat sheet, or just a story, the skeleton of a story, <laughs> working out what the scenes are. And it might be that, you know, you can leave that to cook for a bit and come back later and go, I've suddenly realised what this film's all about. And you might even have, wake up at three in the morning and go, I, I, I did that the other night, I'm writing a new project. And I suddenly went, of course, it's about this. It was just like, because I was a cold and a virus <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. And We haven't talked that much about the edit either in film, which I think is so important. It's such a, like, if the writing, the writing bit is just sort of the recipe, and then you sort of go on a supermarket sweep. And it's sort of like, the edit is where you actually go, oh, right, so unfortunately, these are the ingredients that we have. <laughs> you know, like, and actually make the thing, you know? Like, so in film particularly, I feel like the edit is, is huge, um, a huge part of the writing process, yeah. actually. Yeah. Like, but this is where you'll have slightly different experiences, because obviously, so Alice, I mean, would you yeah. be involved in the edit at all? I did, I did go in a few times, but yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And meeting the editor was like a real, I was like, you're me, but in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, he's doing the same, yeah, so um, it's, it's, they're doing the same thing, they're building the story, they're doing all the same rhythmic things that I was doing, but they've got less to choose from. I didn't, you know, always get the stuff they needed. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a, I think, I've, on your question, I think, I totally agree with both of these. I think you can either, it's, you have to get to know yourself as a writer. You have to know whether you, and, and this project, like, if this is the one, you're going to have to sit with it for a really long time. You're going to have to learn the ways in which you're interested in it. And that might just be sitting and asking this person who's a bit interesting to you why they're so interesting. It may be that they're not interesting, and that's the point. So I sort of think that's why these things are difficult, because I don't want to lead you down the wrong way. But I think time, 
you're either, if you're either a person who sits there and it comes to you or, or you're someone who needs to go and do some hunting. But, yeah, keep at it. I've kept everyone talking for like seven hours, so we have to stop now. <laughs> uh, please join me now in thanking Alice Birch, <laughs> Alice Lowe, and we'll start.